Hope you guys had a good free time. Uh, I know that I did. You know, I played basketball with some of you. And, and I always go thinking, you know, I'm the retreat speaker, so I should uh, not play too many games and not get too tired. But then uh, I still think I'm 20 or something because I always end up uh, just playing more than I should. I guess I'm living in denial. But uh, it was good to fellowship with a lot of you through basketball and just even uh, from sharing meals together. And I look forward to uh, having those opportunities again. Hopefully you guys were able to uh, meet up, catch up with one another, or take a nap and, and be refreshed. Um, we're going to continue our retreat theme on beholding our God, especially through the Old Testament. So this morning we looked at the holiness of God. And I know it's a sobering topic to really contemplate and consider And it can leave us feeling a bit remote, distant. You know, because if God is thrice holy and we're just finite creatures, uh, we we shrivel back in uh, worthiness, thinking that, man, we can't even have a relationship with this kind of God. And yet, that's why I think this passage tonight is so helpful for us. Because now we move to the faithfulness of God. This holy God cares so much the people he has created in his image, that he be faithful to him. And we see this fully expressed in the gospel. We'll get there, but uh, go ahead and if you have your copy of God's Word, turn in them to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. It's a very familiar passage. I'll go ahead and read from verses 1 to 14, and then we'll pray asking for the Lord's help. Follow along with me. Genesis 22, beginning verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? Abraham said, Here am I, my son. Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? Abraham said, God, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, And said, Abraham, Abraham. 
And he said, here am I. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Would you pray with me? God, we pray for your help. O Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see the vast richness of this text. And in so much as it points us to your Son, to yourself, to your faithfulness, Lord, we pray that you would prick our hearts, remove any callousness. O Lord, that we would be eager to receive your word with joy that it be planted so deeply within us that as we abide in Christ, we would abound in fruit, knowing that we are anchored to a faithful God. Lord, I pray that you would come and convict to build up those who are discouraged and to break down those who are prideful, that we might all be undone before the goodness of our Savior. We ask for your help. We are in dire need of your grace and your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. David Livingston believed that the salvation of men ought to be the chief desire and aim of every Christian. David Livingston dedicated his life to the mission field. And on December 8, 1840, he set sail for Africa hoping to bring the gospel to those who had never heard of Jesus Christ. And on one occasion, he was almost mauled to death by a lion. He had to shoot one down when it appeared too close to his house in the middle of the night. I mean, can you think, can you fathom that? That's just crazy. Most of us haven't experienced this. You know, like, what did you do on your mission trip? Well, we had VBS, we shared the gospel, and we shot some lions. It's unheard of. But for David Livingston, it was no big deal. It was just the usual grind of being a missionary. And for the next 17 years, Livingston endured the difficulties of disease and hardship for the sake of bringing the good news of Christ to lost souls. He returned very briefly to Britain in 1857 and had an opportunity to address students at Cambridge University. And this is what he had to share about his life and sacrifice on the mission field. He addressed them, and he said this, quote, For my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. 
All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. If you're like me, then likely the life and words of people like David Livingston can be a source of encouragement and discouragement. His life and words, they encourage me because I want to be able to say those words with a life that backs it up. And at the same time, his life and words can discourage me because I see how far I am from standing in his shoes. You know, I've never given my life to the mission. I've never been to Africa. I've never shot lions. But there is a friction building up within me because sometimes I read or hear about the lives of people just like this missionary, David Livingston, and I want to live like that, but I don't know how. And I'm sure there are many of you who might feel the same way, so tired of complacency, and you're wondering, how can I live sold out to God? Maybe this is your response when you read Scripture sometimes. You know, you read monumental chapters. You read Hebrews 11, the chapter on the Hall of Faith, and you're baffled. You are encouraged and discouraged at the same time, wondering how people like Noah, Abraham, and David could live such lives of faith and accomplish wonderful, great deeds for the Lord. But take heart. The key ingredient to their lives is faith in God. Isn't that so comforting to all of us? They were just ordinary people, like you and me, who are faithful to a faithful God. Listen, radical lies for God is nothing more than a rooted life in God. And if you're aching not to waste your life, but to make it count for the glory of God, then the solution isn't necessarily all that you can do, all that you can bring to the table, but what God has done and what God can do. I'm a firm believer that we do more for God when we hear about what he has done for us. Faithfulness to God is anchored in and by the faithfulness of God. And the two are inextricably linked. And that's why the study of God's faithfulness is both crucial and necessary. This passage brings out God's faithfulness in high definition, in full color. First, God's faithfulness, if you need an outline, is expressed in his promises. God's faithfulness is expressed in his promises. Our chapter starts by putting us within a certain context, a particular timeline. Moses, the author of Genesis, says in verse 1, after these things, which should cause us to question, well, what things is he referring to? If we peer back one chapter before, the last story we should have read, the last story lodged in our heads, is the birth of Isaac and the sending away of Hagar and Ishmael. And this causes us to, to go even further back, to be brought back to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, in which God promised, God made a covenant with Abraham to provide a unique son through whom the nations would be blessed. So in Genesis 21, the chapter prior, Abraham and Sarah are finally given that promised son, Isaac. And it's after these events, all these events have transpired, 
after all these things, after years of faith wrestling, after years of wondering if they would actually have a son, years of joy to see God prove true to his promise and provide Isaac, years of growth as they witnessed Isaac mature before their eyes into a young man, years of exciting anticipation to see how God works in and through his family, that God tested Abraham. We're given a sneak peek into the intention and purpose of God. God is about to test Abraham. And knowing this frames how we understand the rest of this chapter. God sets out to see if Abraham's faith would prove true. To see whether Abraham would place his faith in himself, in his son, or in God himself. Look again at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Verse 2, God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So get that. God tells Abraham to take his precious son and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now, we have peace in our hearts because we have been told it's all a test. It's been spoiled for us. God is merely setting out to test Abraham. But Abraham has no clue. In his mind, he is going to kill his son. He has been commissioned by God to sacrifice his precious child. But look at how God tightens the screws even more. In some translations, like the ESV, which is the translation I'm using, Isaac's name is placed in the middle. But in actuality, the Hebrew reads with Isaac at the end, like in the NASB, I believe. So it reads literally like this, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. This is a literary device. It's like when you butter up your friends or parents so that you can get them to do something you want. And so what you do is, if you're smart, you, you build them up, showering them with praise, so that when you finally say their name, it hits with a ton of force, and then when their guard is down, you can slip in your lofty request. We all did this, right? Or is it just me? Was I just the bad manipulator with my parents? I know I did this all the time when I had something very demanding that I wanted. And so if I wanted, I would suck up to my mom and say, fairest and kindest parent. Wisest in all the nations. Most generous and beautiful person in the universe. My favorite mother of mothers. Mother's high. And then what comes next? It would be the difficult, weighty request, right? Please, please. Back then it was like, buy me a Game Boy. Buy me a a car. Buy me a house. Whatever it was. (laughs) But each statement, each leading description starts out as a joyful truth. Until that last part, until the request is made, each statement then becomes a huge blow to the heart. And that's what's taking place here. You have to listen to the voice of God. He's saying, take your son. And Abraham is probably dialoguing back, agreeing in his heart. Take your son. Yes, he's my son. Your only son. Yes, he's my precious son. Whom you love. Yes, I do love him. Isaac. Yeah, that's my boy. And then the dagger. Offer him as a burnt offering. 
This is a shot to the heart. When God says he's going to test Abraham, he's not messing around. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. You know, without a word, Abraham prepares to obey. He sets out with a donkey, two servants, Isaac, chopped up wood for offering, and no sacrifice but his son. And for three whole days, Abraham contemplates what he's about to do. Three days to hear the words of God bouncing off the walls of his mind, reverberating in the chambers of his chest, until at last, before he knows it, he's arrived. And the first recorded words from Abraham to his party are jotted down for us in verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Did you hear that? I and the boy worship. Abraham's faith is unwavering. God has promised. God promised. God made a covenant with Abraham. So Abraham is freed, liberated to worship. He's learned his lesson. He will not laugh in the face of God. He will worship, whether in hard times or in joyful times. When the sun is shining down on him and when the storm rages, Abraham resolves to worship. Why? Because he trusts in the promise of the Lord. God has proven before and will continue to prove faithful. And Abraham is unshakably confident to the point that he says both he and his son, they would return again. He knew. He didn't have all the details worked out. But he was sure that even if he had to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, somehow, someway, Isaac was coming back with him. Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. I find this so convicting, so challenging. Beloved, suffering and sovereignty are not impossible in the heart of Abraham. Because suffering is merely a platform, a means that that makes you remember and trust in the sovereignty of God. Friends, is that how you live? That though hardships may come in the form of poor test scores, job insecurities, car accidents, sickness, and death, you can bank on the promises of God. That he will never leave or forsake you. That he is doing all things, working all things for your good. Do the promises of God give you an unshakable faith even in the valleys of death? Because he's still there and he's still faithful. The promises of God are proofs of his faithfulness. And not only do the promises of God allow us to faithfully obey But secondly, God's faithfulness is expressed in his provisions. God's faithfulness is expressed in his provisions. Now you you might think I'm just being uh, 
very picky here because these two points might seem to be the same. And that's because they're so woven together, they often appear as one. What God promises, because he's faithful, he does provide. And what God provides oftentimes is tied to what he promises. So we're getting the full picture. This is God's faithfulness put on display. Look down at verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. We find out more details. Abraham distributes the materials needed for the sacrifice between him and Isaac. He's going to carry the fire and the knife, and he gives Isaac the wood for the burnt offering. And all these minute descriptions, all these details, building up suspense towards the sacrifice soon to take place. All these little clues anticipating the grand event about to come. And as Abraham and Isaac ascend the mountain, Isaac breaks the silence by popping a question to his father. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father... And he said, here am I, my son. Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac thinks to himself, you know, it's a little strange. It's a little odd. It seems we have all the materials necessary for the burnt offering. I mean, we have the fire here, the wood here, but where is the actual lamb that daddy and I are going to offer? Where's the sacrifice? Well, maybe dad forgot. And so it's only logical for Isaac to ask, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And we feel the rub. We can feel the tension because we know it's you, Isaac. The burnt offering is you. And I'm sure Abraham's heart was riveted, undone by this question because he knew the answer. But how does Abraham reply? Verse 8. God will provide. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You know, it would have been the opportune time for Abraham to lay out his cards, to explain everything to his son. He could have shared how he didn't want to sacrifice Isaac, but God had commanded it. Or maybe it would be the time to, 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 to fall out and to back up from the plan and just tell Isaac to, to make a run for it, hide from God. But Abraham, he doesn't waver. His faith is in the Lord who provides. And this, this is the life lesson he wants to teach his son. Isaac, God will provide. God always provides. Just as God provided you as a son for me, Isaac, so God will be faithful to provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. And so they continue the journey. They went, both of them, together, father and son. Do you see how the faithfulness of God allows Abraham to be faithful even when the situation appears unfavorable? Does your understanding of God's faithfulness allow you to be faithful to him even when your circumstances are unpleasant, when they're bleak and black? The time has arrived. The location reached. And in complete silence, we need to watch. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place 
of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. This scene unravels in slow motion. You need to place yourself there. You've got to see Abraham building the altar, laying the wood down, and at last holding his son. You've got to notice the tender and heartbreaking movement of his arm as he winds and binds his son, as Isaac is piecing together the puzzle, as as he's starting to get what's going on. You've got to feel yourself protesting in your heart. No, 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 there's got to be another way as Abraham gently places his petrified son on top of the wood. You've got to keep yourself from gasping as Abraham reaches out, as he stretches out his hand to grip the knife, as Abraham raises his arm to the sky to slaughter his son, his only son, whom he loves, Isaac. And you've got to be broken as Abraham's watery eyes latch on to Isaac's tearful eyes. No words were necessary. Isaac gets it. He is the sacrifice. Can you feel the gravity of the moment as seconds separate Abraham from driving that knife through his precious child? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And the angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I imagine those must have been some of the sweetest words to ever fall upon Abraham's ears. The curtains of God's plan are pulled back. It was a test to know that Abraham feared God alone. It wasn't that God was deficient in knowledge, but the trial was an opportunity for Abraham to publicly, to visibly demonstrate, above all, he worshipped the Lord. To know by experience that Abraham feared faithful God. And God provides for the faithful. Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, And behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. You know, this is almost comical, right? Abraham happens to lift up his eyes, and Abraham happens to look in the right direction, and the ram happens to be caught in a thicket. I mean, a ram, and not any other animal that was that wasn't suitable or proper for offering. You know, Abraham didn't lift up his eyes and see a donkey, an elephant, or a walrus in the thicket. But a ram, a live ram, and not a dead ram, stuck by his horns in a thicket nearby. This is too coincidental to be chance. This is all God. Do you see the provision of God? And don't miss the end of verse 13. Abraham went and took the ram 
and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The ram took the place of Abraham's son. The ram was substituted for Abraham's son. And more than a test, this narrative proves firmly how the Lord is faithful to provide. Look at Abraham's response in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. You know what's amazing about this verse? The Hebrew verb for provide is ra'ah. And all you need to know about that is it's generally the word translated in our Bibles for see. See. The Lord sees. He doesn't just test Abraham. He sees Abraham. He sees Abraham's need for a burnt sacrifice. And it's as Abraham said in verse 8. God sees and provides for himself a sacrifice for burnt offering. And that's why Abraham calls the mountain the Lord will provide. Because this event on the mountain, what transpired here, would serve as a milestone to remind, consistently remind Abraham of the Lord's faithfulness, of God's all-seeing eyes, of God's promise to provide. Beloved, let me ask, where are the moments the mountainous events in your life that serve as a reminder for you? Where are those times in your life you can look back and say with boldness and firmness in your voice that the Lord provides? Is it in how God has brought you to this retreat? Maybe the job that you're at? Is it how God has provided a church, friends and family to fellowship with? Is it how God has provided ultimately by saving you through His Son, Jesus Christ? You know, whenever I'm reading a book or watching a movie, I want to know how conflict will be resolved. Suspense, I hate that. I'm the type of guy that that needs to know how is this problem going to be answered. And so I want to know how the Narnians are going to defeat the Wicked Witch. I want to know how Batman will foil the Joker's plans. I want to know even as a Laker fans, if Steph Curry is going to bring the Warriors back from a 20-point deficit in the fourth quarter, and he usually does. But at the height of this drama, as Abraham is about to slay his own son, it's the angel of the Lord, capital Lord, who calls out to Abraham telling him to stop. And if you read your Bible enough, you'll encounter this character, the angel of the Lord, in all caps, throughout the Old Testament. But nowhere in the New Testament after Jesus Christ arrives on scene. And many theologians and scholars have speculated over the identity of the angel of the Lord. And we don't have time to get into it now, but there's substantial evidence to support that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now just think about that. That stops me in my tracks. That as Abraham, the father is about to sacrifice his son Isaac. It is the angel of the Lord who calls out, commanding Abraham to stop. Doesn't that blow your mind? This is a picture, a glimpse of the gospel. This is how the conflict in our story is resolved. The Lord sees and the Lord provides. God sees our plight. 
He sees our sinful hearts. How left to ourselves we will have to bear the wrath of Almighty God. He sees how we need a Savior and He promises and He provides. All the way back in Genesis to the Gospels, to Revelation, to our lives today, God is faithful. The story of Abraham and Isaac serve as a template for the Gospel. God sends the very angel of the Lord who witnesses this magnificent event in Genesis 22 as our sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bore the cross on His back. He carried the wooden beam up another mount, Mount Golgotha. And there, Jesus Christ was bound, yes, by human hands, but ultimately by the hands of His Father. He was placed on God's altar of holiness and justice. And it pained the Father as He reached out His omnipotent hand and held the dagger of His holy wrath over His Son, His only Son, whom He loves, Jesus Christ. And you know what happens next? Silence. There were no words to stop God. There was no angel of the Lord to break in and call out, God, 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 don't lay a hand on Him. Because the angel of the Lord was on the altar of wood, pinned to the cross. And God's hand comes down upon His beloved Son. The wrath of God is poured upon Jesus. Why? Because God is faithful. He is faithful to see our sins and provide a Savior. This scene unravels in slow motion. And you need to put yourself there at Calvary. You've got to feel the thud of those hard nails punching through his soft hand. You've got to smell the crisp air peppered with the metallic scent of his blood. You've got to watch as the Son of God droops from a cross, gasping for air, gasping for life. You've got to hear the voice of Christ quivering as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of my sin. And there's nothing I can say but that because of my sin. He stood in my place and bore the wrath that I deserve. He stood in my place and died the death I deserve. And he died the death you deserve. You were supposed to be on the altar. But God saw your sin and provided a lamb. The lamb of God. You were supposed to bear His wrath, but God provided His Son, the Son of God, as a perfect sacrifice in your place instead of you. R.C. Sproul Jr. said, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer, that only happened once. And he volunteered. You see, every time we peer at the cross, we're beholding a mirror. We're supposed to look at the cross and realize, that's where I belong. And when we do, beloved, our response should be to fear the Lord, just like Abraham. To both be in fear and in love 
with this kind of God. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he with him not graciously give to us all things? We ought to fear that such a holy God would require such a costly sacrifice, that he did not spare his own son. We ought to fear that if we have no Savior, we will bear the wrath of God ourselves on our own backs. And we ought to fear in the sense that we are awestruck by such love and grace that this holy and fearful God did send His own Son. That He gave Him up for us to pay the penalty we deserve to die a sinner's death that we might be forgiven by His blood. We ought to bow the knee in prayer, lift our voices in song, and give our hearts in worship to this God. We ought to be fearfully faithful to God who has been faithful to us in his promises and in his provision. Often Genesis 22 is held before us as the capstone of faith. We learned this maybe in in Bible study or, or when we were little as kids. Abraham is presented to us as a stellar example of what it looks like to be faithful to God. But that's a little skewed. That's a little inaccurate. Because this story is more than a story about Abraham's faith. Sure, it's astonishing that Abraham was faithful to obey the command of God. But what's more incredible is why Abraham's faithful. It's because he knew God to be faithful. This story is about the faithfulness of God. In the grand scheme of things, Abraham, he's just another character in the Bible. But God, God is the hero. In Hebrews 11, while Abraham is a prominent example in the hall of faith, we don't stop to marvel at Abraham's faith and say, oh, wow, that's amazing, Abraham. You're sure awesome. Abraham's faith is a pointer. It points and culminates in another. Abraham was looking to Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame to bring you and I to God. Beloved, what does your life say about the faithfulness of God? If people were to examine your life, what would they say you place your faith in? Do you live in such a way to show the world that you live by faith for a great God, or is it for a great paycheck, great friends, great material comforts, or yourself? Do your actions, responses, and relations demonstrate that you worship a faithful God. You know, I've been out of college for about a decade now. I wish I didn't have to confess that, but I had a friend who, right out of college, he went on to the mission field immediately to China. So he's been there since then, 10 years. And I had an opportunity to, to ask him early on, you know, why did you commit your life to missions? You know what his response was? It was very simple, just two words. Why not? Why not? And that just devastated me. It humbled me. Why not? It's so simple and yet profound. If you are a Christian, the question isn't why you should follow and obey God. The question is why not? He is a God who promises. He is a God who provides. He has given us his son. But oftentimes it's the greatest truth we take for granted. It's the gospel we presume upon. And so I would ask, 
Church, did you wake up today thanking God for his faithfulness, for the gospel? Or were you so consumed, so preoccupied with what to wear, what you're going to eat for breakfast, what assignments you need to finish for work or for school, that you showed up to retreat without pausing to praise God for his grace? A theologian said, we cannot live on yesterday's recollection of the gospel. And that is so true. You and I cannot live on yesterday recollection of the gospel. We need to be people consumed by the faithfulness and love of God because that's the only way we will live faithfully to Him. You see, when you understand that God has been faithful, then you won't lie to others because God has never lied to you. When you understand that God has been faithful to provide you a Savior, then you are faithful to God when coworkers or classmates revile you for your faith. Because they would never die for you, but Christ did. When you understand that God has been faithful to see your sin and save you, then you are faithful to God, and not money or the offerings and riches of this world, because they can never pay for your sin, but Christ can. When you come to understand that God has given you His only Son, then you are faithful to live your life for Him, to say with your lips and your life, I have never sacrificed. Because you understand he's given you his life. He's faithful. Let us be faithful to him. Let's pray. God, the gospel is both foolishness and wisdom. It is foolishness to us because, Lord, to a certain degree, we cannot fathom and grasp the level of, of sacrifice paid on our behalf, freely offered to us, that if we would turn and profess Christ, we might be forgiven. Lord, it's not a story we would come up with on our own. And yet it is the message of an all-wise God, of a God who demonstrates how holy and faithful He is through the most surprising ways. Lord, we pray that we would never graduate from the gospel, but it would define us. Lord, it would so grip who we are, our core identity, that it would change our outlook upon life. That we might live in such a clear way in faithfulness to you, it is only right and inherent for those who understand your faithfulness. And so, Lord, we pray for, for your help, for your work, that you would ingrain our hearts with this passage and the rest of Scripture that attests to your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And we pray that would be the lens through which we see life, or the relationships we have, the trials we endure, the blessings you bestow upon us, they all come from a hand of a faithful God. And for that, we can take heart and comfort. Lord, continue to teach us and mold us to be like Christ. We thank you so much for his sacrifice, for the gospel message. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.